water, cool talk, water cooler talk and the, the radio chatter and the talk over the back fence this week has all been about the rapture now, hasn't it? And uh, Harold Camping was wrong about the date, but I have a question for you. Are you among people who love his appearing and who long for his appearing? 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who have loved His appearing. Or as one version of it says, those who long for His appearing. They say it was supposed to happen last night at 6 o'clock Pacific time. That I checked it out. That was 9 o'clock our time. I happened to be here at the study and... It's humbling, but I have to admit, I stopped for a while and I just had a talk with the Lord. And I said, Lord, you and I both know Harold Camping is wrong for setting a date like this. But if you're about to come back, I'm sure looking forward to it. (laughs) About five minutes after nine, I got a phone call. It was from Lois, his cell phone. And the little voice on the other end of the line was Hope. And she said, Dad? (laughs) I said, yes. She goes, I'm just checking to see if you were still there. Which I thought was very interesting because she's with her mother. So, I'm like, if mom's still with you, you shouldn't be calling me. Now, I don't think that Harold Camping was right about setting a date, but the Bible is unmistakably clear that Jesus Christ will return to earth one day. And people all over this region need to know that there are people here who aren't kooks and fruitcakes and nuts who really believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth someday. All genuine Bible-believing Christians believe and know that Jesus Christ is going to return. Jesus Himself promised that He would return. He doesn't keep His promises. He's not who He said He was. The Old Testament prophets said that Jesus would come twice. The apostles taught and the scriptures say that Jesus Christ will literally and physically return. And the presence of mockers, like it says in 1 Timothy chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, in the last time, scoffers will come walking after their own lust, their own desires. The presence of these scoffers and mockers and people who mock the return of Christ in itself is an evidence that Jesus Christ is going to return because he said that. It was a sign of the end times when people would mock and that we've heard people mocking the return of Christ this week. The Bible says in Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens will have the last laugh. So even though people are laughing, our, our job is to help them to understand that Jesus really is the king and he really is going to come back and he really is good and benevolent and wants to pour his mercy and grace out upon them. So they don't mock God, but they meet God when he comes. I want you to notice some things here about the return of Christ before we go into our text this morning. The return of Christ is mentioned 1,845 times in the Bible. The return of Christ is mentioned in 23 of 27 New Testament books. It's mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. There are only 260 chapters in the New Testament. It's mentioned eight times more than the first coming. It's mentioned twice as much as the atonement, and we know that the atonement is important. It's the first prophecy of the Bible. It's the last prophecy of the Bible. Fifty times in the Bible, we are told to be ready for the return of Christ. Jesus himself promised to return in the Bible. It's recorded 21 times. 
Is, it a, is the return of Christ important? Is it basic? Is it cardinal? Yes, it is. Angels testified in Acts chapter 1, the ascension, that Jesus Christ would return in the same way that he ascended. He's coming back literally and physically one day. Don't doubt it. Now, we can all talk about schemes and times and time charts and all of that, but no one who's a Bible-believing Christian can dare deny that Jesus claimed that he was coming back, that the King of glory, Jesus, is coming back. When he will return, he will return personally. He will return literally. He will return visibly. He will return suddenly and dramatically and gloriously. He will return triumphantly. Did you get all that? What will he do when he comes back? He will defeat the Antichrist and his armies. He will regather and restore Israel to faithfulness. He will judge the living. He will resurrect the dead. He will bind the devil. And he will establish himself as the king. Is anybody excited about this? Now that's kind of interesting. You say, wait a minute, I didn't get all that. Well, send me an email. <laughs> Go ahead, write it down. Come on, people. Be good learners. That's Ken at KenPierpont.com. Send me an email, and I'll send you all that stuff. And that way you can like study that on your own. And you too can be enthused again about this thing that the people who don't know the Lord are making fun of. Jesus Christ is going to come someday. He is going to catch the church away to himself. If you believe the Bible, that's what he said he's going to do. He is going to come and someday he's going to establish himself as a reign upon this earth. Heaven and earth are going to join together someday. This is the Jesus we're going to be talking about today. This is the Jesus that Matthew introduces us to in the book that we've been studying since back in September, except for the Christmas time. And today what we're going to do is we're going to land on a really beautiful spot here in, in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 through 12, which is, it's, I think it's going to say something different than you think it's saying. We study it today, and you'll find very fascinating, and we're going to do a little bit of a sweep of the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, you know, we went for, we've, we've been teaching through the book of Matthew, which is like a miniature biography of Jesus. From Matthew chapter 1 now, we're in Matthew chapter 7. It's going to take us about two and a half, three years. Jesus may come back before we get done. But uh, wouldn't that be good? But, uh, but what's going to happen, not today, now that could happen today too, for that matter. Um, so, uh, so we have uh, there, uh, Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to do a little brief survey of Matthew 1 through 7 so that you fully understand why verses 1 through 11, or 7 through 11 go with verse 12. Because when you look at 7 through 11, it looks like it's about prayer. And verse 12 looks like it's about something else. And what's this passage about prayer doing kind of stuck in the middle of this passage that looks like it's about other things? These are some of the questions that kind of bounce around in my hollow brain this week. And I want to talk to you uh, about them here today. So we're gonna, this is a little review of Matthew, okay? This is, Matthew was a publican, right? He was a tax collector who was converted and then he used his skill at accounting to account for the life of Christ and to say to his Jewish friends primarily who Jesus was. There, now, why, you know, I need to probably tell you, why would the Bible be aimed at Jewish people? Is Jesus, why, why is that? Because Jesus expected that the Jewish people would be faithful to deliver to other people, that, which are called in the Bible Gentiles, including most of us, the truth about God. He has a demand on them. He has an expectation on them. Matthew is, making, is writing a book to show especially to a Jewish audience who Jesus is. And he says, and this is kind of a little survey, a little review of Matthew so far, that Jesus is God. He proves that Jesus is God by giving a lineage, by pointing out that Jesus was virgin born, that he's called Emmanuel by God, God with us, that Jesus is very God, same as God, with God, came to earth in human form. This is what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 1, that he is absolutely unique. No one else is like him. He's not a prophet. He is very God 
of very God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Remember, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This to Jewish people would have been a powerful reference because they would have been giving these lamb animal sacrifices all of these years to atone for their sin, to point toward one who would be the ultimate Lamb of God. Matthew says this is the ultimate sacrificial Lamb. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is virgin-born Emmanuel, God in the flesh. He's absolutely unique. He's the ultimate sacrificial Lamb. He is perfectly righteous. And this is demonstrated in his baptism. Why is he getting baptized? He didn't need to be forgiven of his sins. He didn't have any sins. Jesus never sinned. Sinlessly perfect. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Now, the righteousness thing is a big deal in Matthew because Matthew's argument really is about what is true righteousness. The prevailing religious people of the day, they had kind of like a little franchise on what they said righteousness was, and Jesus just beats it down. He just goes after that. Every time he opens his mouth here in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes straight for the throat of this religious system that has perverted righteousness, and he says this is what righteousness is supposed to look like. And Jesus is perfectly righteous. So this is kind of, it's getting good, isn't it? He's God, he's virgin born, he's Emmanuel, he's absolutely unique, he's the ultimate sacrificial lamb, he's perfectly righteous, demonstrated in his baptism, he's infinitely powerful. This is, I'm up to Matthew chapter 4 now, where he shows uh, power over demons and power over disease. He's infinitely powerful. And Jesus has the right to demand repentance and loyalty. When he gets to chapter 4, that's what he says. So now he's going to go and he's going to preach repentance. From chapter 4, verse 17, it says this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, I'm about ready to... to, my, My rule is here. It's at hand. And to get into the kingdom and to be a part of the kingdom, you need to repent. You need to turn away from where you were going to turn to me. So this is kind of like Matthew in review, if you will. Now this brings us to our text for today, because our text today is Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Matthew 7, 7 through 12. And, and the reason I, I think you're going to understand it better, because we've led up to it this way, we'll do another little bit of a survey later, a quick one, in order to really help you to see, and that is set in your, in your heart, the main thing about the passage is not what, the initial, what initially appears to be. Where, where Jesus is going, his big idea in this passage is a little something different than you might originally think when you first read the passage based on the amount of text that's there. I'll explain that to you in a minute, but right now what I'd like to do is I'd like for all of us to focus our attention on the Word of God, this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's believers in Jesus Christ, knowing who Jesus is, that He's going to physically return, that He never had a beginning, that He will never have an end, that we're going to spend eternity with Him, that He's very God of very God, that He has the right to demand loyalty of everybody in the world. Wouldn't it be a really good idea if He speaks, we listen? Wouldn't it be a really good idea if He gives a sermon that we know that sermon? You're going to be shocked when I tell you this, but when I was a boy, I took piano lessons. My mother tortured me. My mother encouraged me to take piano lessons. Now, she had this little uh, clock that she would set on the piano. It's like, you will be tortured for 30 minutes now. If you're a piano teacher, you need to plug your ears for a moment, okay? For 30 minutes, she would set that thing. And I'm a hyperactive kid, if you notice this. I'm completely hyperactive and I'm intuitive. I don't, like, learn the names of the notes and the timing and all of that. If you can feel your way into this, it's going to work for me. My mom did not allow... They didn't have a Suzuki method back then, okay? It was just... There was just one old, hardcore way to learn to play the piano. And my mother says, you know, puts the thing, turns it on, sets it down. For 30 minutes, you will stay there, and you will practice the piano. It was like torture to me. 
I could think of everything else. Anytime somebody puts a timer on me, it's like preaching. They put a timer on me, and they tell me how much, it's like torture to me. So she puts this there, and I just, and I look at that score of music, and I'm thinking, how in the world would a person ever get their hands to work like this and play all of that? There's no way to do that. And it occurred to me, something occurred to me, it's probably the one thing besides middle C that I learned in my piano lessons. And it was that every good boy deserves fudge. I remember that too. The fudge part. Um, but, uh, but I remember this, and, and that was that I need to break this thing down into manageable bites. And so I came up with this little thing on my own. And this is later true with guitar. It's true with other things and singing and choral and all of that. And this is what I call it. This is what helps me. And Pastor Pine, you can use this if you want to. Um, what are you guys laughing about? And, and that is master the measure. Master the measure. You have a little chunk there. Don't worry about the next one. Figure this measure out. Get the timing down. What notes are we playing? Am I right? If you're a musician, you know what I'm talking about. You master this measure. You play it over and over again until your mom is going crazy, right? And then you move to the next one. You put the two of them together. You understand what I'm trying to say is this. We have the word of the living God, the person of Jesus Christ, who came to earth in physical form and taught his basic teaching in front of us in a book. So we should master this little by little. We should study this book. We should love this book. We should understand this book. We should know this book. We should live in this book. So let's read it. Chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who if the son, his son, ask for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever... You, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We'll look at this in three chunks. That's kind of common, isn't it? First, understand, God wants us to seek Him. Can I say it this way? He wants us to seek Him resolutely. He wants us to seek Him repeatedly. Like if you're playing football, you do the same drills over and over and over again. Am I right? Same drill. You don't go to, you don't go to practice and go, hey, coach, that little thing that we were doing, a hamburger thing last night, you know, me and the guys were talking, and we're tired of doing that. We want to do something different tonight. Coach says, oh, you do, don't you? Any good coach worth his salt is going to have you do that 17,000 times more now until you throw up, because that's how it works. You, you just go after that thing, you repeatedly, well, it shows your resolve. It shows that there's something that you're serious about. It shows there's something that's valuable. It shows there's something that's important to you. In chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, when Jesus is talking about prayer here, that's really all that he's saying. I expect you to be serious when you seek me. I want you to go after me seriously. I want you to ask and seek and knock. I want you to repeatedly, and I want you to resolutely seek me. I want you to be serious when you seek me. Now, he doesn't want us to be confused into thinking that means he isn't eager and willing to answer our prayers, because he is. But he wants people who are serious about seeking him, and that's really all that it's saying there. We could break that all down, and we could say, what does ask mean, and what does seek mean, and what does knock mean? I really think it's a poetic way of Jesus in his sermon of saying, 
I want you to be serious when you seek me. Not, I'm reluctant to answer your prayers or give you good things, but I want you to be serious when you seek me. Now, this is true throughout the Scriptures. Let me give you some examples of it in Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. You know you have these Old Testament prophecies that God gives through prophets, and He says they're going to come to pass. But then He says, I want you to bother me and not give me any rest or peace until I fulfill these prophecies. It's like how he works. Our prayers are a part of the way that God works. So we know that Jesus Christ is going to return. He wants us to ask him to return. That's the way he works. This is what it says in Isaiah 62, 6 and 7. I've set a watchman on the walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You will make them mention to the Lord not to keep silent. Give him no rest until he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise on the earth. He has a future for Jerusalem. He has an idea about the earth, what he's going to do. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray like you're a watchman on the wall. And I want you to give me no rest until I do that. Does that mean that he's reluctant to do what he promised he's going to do? No. It means that he wants people who are serious about asking him things. That's what he wants us to be. Another example would be Jacob. Remember Jacob? You know, he was, like we said before, you know, he was not like your exhibit A great guy, but God decided he was going to use him, and Jacob becomes a prince with God. But at one point, when, when Jacob really literally gets a hold of God, he has a wrestling match with God. He wrestles with God. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 26, he says, Let me go for the day breaks. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is the attitude that Jesus is saying he wants from people. I want you to be the kind of people who know that I'm the one who blesses and you are resolute about seeking me. You are serious about seeking me. And you seek me repeatedly asking, seeking, knocking. That's the way he wants us to be. Jeremiah, you're familiar with this passage. It was influential in my own dad's salvation. He said, You will seek me and find me when you have searched for me with all your heart. David often talked about this kind of persistence and he used a special phrase for it in the Bible called it waiting on the Lord. It's not just like you're passively waiting. It's like you're actively obeying and placing your faith and trust and persistently praying. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. And David said it many times and others did too. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage and I will strengthen your heart. So wait, I say on the Lord, be the kind of people who are constantly looking to the eyes of God for what it is that you need and, and, and that you desire and want the best kinds of things. It's important that we really understand about the Lord that he, is, that, that he wants us to seek Him seriously. I love the story about the woman from Tyre. This is modern Lebanon, right? This is a, this is a, a woman. Jesus would have gone with His disciples up to, to where this modern Lebanon now, the Tyre, it would have been a, a place near the sea, would have been a beautiful place for Him to go in order to get away because He always had people pulling on Him because if you're God and you can heal people and so forth, you're going to draw a crowd. At this point in His life, He's drawing a crowd. He goes up there on the surface, it looks like that's just all he's doing. He's trying to get away. But he also is providentially arranging a meeting with this Gentile woman whose daughter is severely demon-possessed. Do you remember the story? It's a beautiful story. Here's this woman, and she goes, and her disciples go, look, Jesus isn't seeing anybody. He is not taking any customers right now. She's like, I know, but my daughter, I've got to go. She gets through the barricade of disciples. She gets to Jesus, and she says to Jesus, I need your help. And I'm paraphrasing freely. And Jesus says, you're not Jewish, so I can't help you. 
It's like, that's crazy. Why? Why did he say that? Wasn't Jesus going to be the light that lightens the Gentiles? Didn't he want to inspire Jewish people to reach non-Jewish people? Why would Jesus say that? Because he was trying to inspire and stimulate in this Gentile woman faith. And she says, can't even the dogs have the crumb? Remember this? Can't even the dogs eat the crumbs off the table after you've fed the children? She's willing to humbly say, I know you have your children that you love, but if there are going to be some crumbs that you brush off the table, could I have them? Could I be your little dog and I could have those and he says to her he says in matthew 15 and verse 28 then jesus says to her "O woman great is your faith let it be as you desire and her daughter was healed from that very hour and the bible says that she went home she found her previously severely demon possessed daughter lying quietly on the bed jesus was actually creating a situation to allow this woman to show that kind of persistent seeking of god I want to ask you this question now. You've got problems. You have difficulties. You have things that burden you. You have things that make you anxious or angry. Do you seek God that way? Do you really go after God and seek God? That's what He wants. Now, He doesn't want you to seek Him that way because He's reluctant to help you. He wants you to seek Him that way because He wants you to take Him seriously. Six times in the New Testament, the word is translated devoted to or persevere or continuing is connected with prayer. Let me give you an example. Acts 1.14 says... These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and brothers. This is in Acts chapter 1. They had the same word. They continued. They, they were resolute in this. They're, they're, they're seeking God with resolution. Acts 2, it says it again. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and, they, and also in the, in, in the fellowship and the breaking bread. And what else? In prayer is what it says next. Right. In Acts 6 and verse 4, they said they... The, 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 the elders said, we're going to give ourselves continually to prayer. Six times in the New Testament, what I'm saying is six times in the New Testament, there's a special word that talks about praying with a special kind of perseverance. So again, it's not that God is reluctant to answer, but he wants serious people seeking him seriously. He doesn't want the little I lay my me down to sleep to be the end of our prayer, you know, or the little can thing we do before we pray, or somebody's little book that they wrote out, you know, a long time ago, and it means nothing to us. He wants us to long for him, and he wants us to ask him about regular things like daily bread and, and qualities of character like he's been talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. The phrase is used again in Romans chapter 12, verse 12 says, we're continuing steadfastly in prayer. The word is used again in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 at the end of the passage about the Christian's armor where it says praying always with prayer and supplication of the Spirit and being watchful to this end with all perseverance. Same same word. And then again in Colossians in a beautiful passage in Colossians 4 verses 2 through 4. Six times all together. Here he says continue earnestly in prayer and be vigilant in it. So what I'm saying is this. It's okay to be driving along and just ask God for a parking space. That's okay. It's okay to ask God, where did I put my keys? It's okay to say, God, I love that dogwood tree. I just happened to drive by. That was, a, that was special. It's okay to thank God for your hamburger when you eat it and asking to protect you from it. You know, that's okay to do. But there ought to be times when you go after God and you seek God and you cry out to God and you plead with God and you're serious about God. Those would be times when you're seriously seeking God and seriously praying. That is what Jesus is saying. Now, again, the temptation then is going to believe if Jesus says I've got to pray like that, it must mean it's because he's reluctant to answer those prayers and that I've got to kind of beat down the walls in order to get him. He was not want us to believe that. He wants us to seek him seriously, but he does not want us to think that he's reluctant to give us good things. 
And this brings us to the next section, if you will, the next section. He wants us to be resolute in seeking him. He wants us to know that he's eager to give good things. He's good in loving, so he's willing to give good things. He's all-powerful, so he's able to give good things. He's all-knowing, so he knows the best things to give. So he wants us to seek him with resolution. And he wants us to seek him repeatedly. And he wants us to know that he's eager to give us the best things. It's interesting. Look at verses 9 through 11 here. What man, this is the little illustration that Jesus used, this little breakout illustration. And I love this about Jesus' teaching because he's so concrete. Jesus doesn't just fly up in the ethereal clouds of abstract thinking all the time. He's the kind of preacher that gets in your face, grabs you by the throat, forces you to understand what he's saying. He can do this with, with kind of like humor, with a barb on it. He can do it with, an, with, with sarcasm. In this case, what does Jesus do? In this case, Jesus touches, he kind of plays the heartstrings. He touches you in a place where all people really ought to be tender. What does he say? He says, if, if your son asked you for something to eat, if he was hungry, and he asked you for something to eat, he wanted just a piece of bread, you wouldn't give him a stone, would you? He said, if your son, look what it says there, if he asked for a fish, you wouldn't give him a serpent or a scorpion or a, something unclean or dangerous. You wouldn't do that, would you? And every person with a heart would, would, would answer this rhetorical question with a resolute, of course I would not. If you have a child, you know, you'd rather they eat than you eat, and you take special delight in seeing them eat and enjoy their food. You want to make sure that they have clothing and food. That's just natural for you. He says, are you telling me that you, and you know you're evil, that you are better than your heavenly Father God who is willing and who is eager to give good things to his children? You're not telling me you're better than God, are you? It's a beautiful illustration. What is he saying? He's saying, first of all, I want you to ask, and I want you to seek, and I want you to knock. I want people who are seriously about seeking me, but I want you to know that he is eager to give. He is eager, he's good. That's a part of God's love and his goodness is that he is very eager to give the very best gifts. Now sometimes we don't think God is eager to give because we're asking for the wrong stuff all the time. We don't think like God thinks. We don't have the kind of values that God has. So we're always asking for stuff that's probably not good for us. And in his mercy, he's not giving that to us. And he's keeping us into the kind of this, he keeps us in the system until we learn to ask for things that really have the value that that we ought to ask for. For instance, James 4, verses 1 through 3 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? They come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. You lust and you don't have. You murder and covet and can't obtain. You fight in war, but you don't have because you don't ask. And when you, don't, you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss because you want to spend it on your pleasures, consume it upon your lust and desires. In other words, if you just want stuff, material things, that's all, for your own desires, God is not obligated to answer that prayer, and he's so good and he's so loving that he won't answer that prayer. He wants you to have the sense to ask him for good things. Now, example of this is in the parallel passage there in Luke, what does he say here? He, he adds a little piece there. Luke adds a little piece that says, he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him. 
We should be looking through the Sermon on the Mount and we should be like cherry-picking the promises of God and praying for the things that God says he wants us to have. So we should pray for this humility that he wants us to have, this meekness that he wants us to have, this peacemaking that he wants us to have, this purity that he wants us to have, this seeking God. These are the things that our hearts need to be trained to long for and we need to recognize that God is eager to give them. You need to be pure. Ask God to make you pure. He's eager to make you pure. He's powerful enough to make you pure. If you need to be pure, ask Him for that. And keep asking Him for that. And seek Him with resolution repeatedly. He is better than any earthly father. If you ask Him for something good, He's not going to give you a snake when you ask Him for something good. Eager to give us the best things. I have heard a guy, a storyteller from Illinois named Jim May talking about growing up his parents were older he was born when his parents were older and they were farmers, like tenant farmers mom had to go to work in town so a lot of times he was alone with his dad and his dad was older and so he's there alone and his dad often would have to say to him in the summertime, Jim, Jimmy I'm going to have to go up and plow the field and I'm not going to be here and I want you to stay here and I don't want you to get into any kind of trouble here's some things I don't want you to do and these are the things I want you to do he said one day he took him out and there was an old, uh, was an old barn, an old garage, and he has accordion doors and he swings the accordion doors open and he goes inside and he pulls a crate over in the middle of the, of the garage. And he says to Jimmy, I want you to get up on that crate. And he gets up on the crate and he goes, I want you to look over your head. And he, he, he snakes this rope down from overhead. He says, take a hold of that rope, I want you to pull on it. Little Jimmy May takes the rope and he starts to pull on it. When he pulls it, he hears this loud, clear ringing of a bell. Then he, he, he says to him, son, listen to me. If you get into any kind of trouble, if you need me for anything, if you're scared or there's an emergency, come out here and get up on this crate, pull this rope, ring the bell, and I will hear you and I will come right away. So his dad goes up and he's plowing and Jimmy's bored. After a while, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He decides to go out and maybe look at the rope. And so he goes out and he looks at the rope for a while and then he decides, I wonder if it would really work (laughs) if I were to get up on that and if I were to pull that rope and if the bell would ring, would my dad really come? And so after a while he... He, he succumbed to temptation. He got up on the, the crate. He reached to hold the rope. He pulled it. And then all of a sudden he heard the tractor coming. Road gear. Smoke billowing out of the stack. Dad standing up on the tractor. The thing is thundering down through the field. He flies up through the yard. And he shuts the tractor down. And he jumps off. There's this fear on his face. It's like, Jimmy, what is it? And Jimmy looks at his dad and says, I'm sorry, I just wanted to see if it would work. The the look of concern melts off his dad's face and he says, don't ever do that to me again. Jim May said that because his dad was older, he was a pretty young man when he died. And Jim said that he was sitting there in the funeral when the little picture of the the little memory of uh, pulling the rope came back to him. And he just sat there at his dad's funeral. Who can I call on now when I'm having trouble? Who can I call on now when I need somebody to help me? And I have a feeling a lot of you are sitting here today and you have the same thought going through your heart. And that is, my problems are so big and my needs are so great. Who can I call on? Jesus wants you to know that you can call on him. He wants you to know that prayer works, that when you call, then he comes. He wants you to know that he's good and he wants you to be serious about seeking him. But all of this, as wonderful as it is, is not the point of this passage. It's setting us up for the point of the passage, which I believe is in verse, uh, verse uh, 12. 
And in verse 12, the reason that we know this is the point of the passage is because of the placement of this interesting word that's translated in the New King James here, therefore. So we know there's a connection. If you've got a therefore, you know there's a connection, right? You've got to understand, this is either connected to the immediate previous context or it's connected to the entire previous context. In other words, Jesus is either talking about, he's, he's going to say the next thing that he says in verse 12 because it kind of modifies or goes with what immediately came before it or it goes with everything that came before it in his sermon. And I think both of those things are somewhat true. Now understand here, and I'm going to prove this in a little bit, there's a symmetry in Jesus' message here. Can I, let me show you this because it's very beautiful. I call it the symmetry of the sermon. In other words, there's this like artful arrangement of this sermon. You've got a sermon here, right, that Jesus preached. You have a synopsis of the sermon. We don't have the whole thing here. We have the material that Matthew and the Holy Spirit have conspired to arrange for us in the Word of God. Does this make sense? So we have this symmetry carried forward, I believe, in what Jesus said. There's this, there's this kind of balanced arrangement, and I want to show it to you. When you see kind of the balanced arrangement of the Sermon on the Mount, then the meaning of verse 12 just kind of comes out very clearly, and I think it brings a barb of conviction with it. I don't know if you can read this because it's small, but chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, are the Beatitudes and the Similitudes. And in a sense that Jesus is giving a flyover of his message, and he's saying this is the way you enter the kingdom through humility and meekness and so forth. I believe that's what he's saying. And then in chapter 5, verses 17, through chapter 7 and verse 12, where we end today, there's this chunk that talks about true righteousness, and it asks the question, are you morally and ethically distinct? Now, don't let me throw you off. Just like track with me. Pay attention to what I'm saying here. Jesus is going to give a message, right? And here's the, here's the context in which he's preaching. He's preaching to sincere disciples, but he's also preaching to sincere disciples who have been profoundly influenced by religious Pharisees and people who have distorted and messed up what true righteousness is. He's going to take them back and show them this is what true righteousness is. This is what the law and the prophets were talking about. There's a theme he's going to return to. Everything in it, whenever you see something like righteousness popping up or when you see law and prophets popping up, you kind of want to go, oh, wait a minute, this is a key theme here. Because in chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, when Jesus introduces the whole message there, he, he talks about that when he says, unless you're right, Righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember what I said a number of weeks ago? That's Jesus' big idea of his sermon. Your righteousness has got to be the real thing. Now here in chapter, chapter 5 through chapter 7, he's going to sweep across here and he's going to say a bunch of things for us to look at our lives and say, well then do I have that? Do I have genuine righteousness? Did Jesus really change my life? Am I really a completely different person? And then he's going to go, like has this been this way for you? Every week as I preach a section of this, it's like incredibly convicting for me. Has that true, been true for you? Because if it's not, I've been doing something wrong. Every week it's like, I, do I get a week off this week? And it's like, no. This week I thought, oh, this is nice. Chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 is just about prayer. It just says, ask, seek, and knock, and, uh, and, then, and, and I will answer, and I'm good, and I'm eager to give good gifts. And I'm like, thank you. I get a week off. I don't get beat up. You know? I don't get this conviction on me this week. I just like ask, unless I'm not praying. You know? But verse 12 goes with it, and it has a bit of a barb to it. And so we don't get a week off. No, it's, every single one of these sections is saying, are you sure you're righteous? You really have genuine biblical righteousness? Has God done a, work, God done a miraculous work? True righteousness, asking the question, are you spiritually and morally and ethically different and distinct? And then you have the statement of the big idea, which I already mentioned, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Now notice the symmetry. I'll just show you all these right here together. Just see this, and you'll see that chapter 7 has got to fit in here, I believe. 
In other words, you can look at chapter 7, you can read it and go, okay, that's about this, and that's about this, and that's about this. They're all different things, and they're just kind of lumped in here together. Some people believe that. I do not believe that at all. I believe he has an unbroken symmetry in all of this message, and I show it here. Six times he goes into this from chapter 5, verse 21 through 48. Six times he uses that formula statement, you have heard, but I say to you. So there's a symmetry there, right? There's this six times it's repeated. Then he has a series of two different things four times. You see it? Chapter, uh, you have, uh, sorry, sorry, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, he has three kinds of sincere worship. So it's like this. Are you genuinely righteous? Well, it's not this, but it's this. It's not what you've heard, but it's what I say. It's not what you've heard, but it's what I say. Six times he says that. There's, there's an order in that. You get it? And then you have three kinds of sincere worship. He says if you're a sincere worshiper, there's secret giving, there's secret praying, and there's secret fasting. You're right. Good, good students. And so there you have the order there. You have the threefold kind of order there. Then you have these two diff- three different things that happen that are, that are, that are, uh, that are two things. And, and ch- you see that in chapter 6, uh, verse 19, through chapter 7, verse 12 that we're talking about. You see it real clearly. If you study it together, what you see is, is this. Are you going to live selfishly, which causes worry and anxiety? Chapter 6 talks about that. All the way up to chapter 6, verse 35. 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's like if you don't do that, you live selfishly for money and in material things. You're going to be worried, and you're going to be greedy, and it's going to be idolatry. And it's not loving, it's selfish. The other way to live is chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Being a loving giver. See what I mean? You've got being a selfish, hoarding, I live for here and now, chapter 6. Chapter 7, you got, I'm a loving giver. Where does this prayer thing, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, fit in the thought here? Here's where it fits. It's just saying this. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 are saying, you've got to prepare yourself. You're going to be loving in the way that you correct other people. Chapter 7 and verse 6 says you need to be loving in the way that you give truth to people, casting your pearls before swine. Chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 is saying you want to be loving like your heavenly Father is loving, that just you ask Him and He gives you things. The point of this is not to do a separate teaching on prayer, which you already have in chapter 6. The point is just to emphasize how good and loving God is. Does that make sense? Did I lose you on that? In other words, why do we have another section on praying here? It's just an illustration of how good God is, and He wants you to be like Him. That's why my sermon title is, Are You Like Him? Are You Like Him? Is this evidence of righteousness in your life that you've given yourself to loving people? Like your Heavenly Father loves people. You ask and you seek and you knock and He gives. Are you that kind of person? If He's in you, you are. If you're not, He's not in you. If you don't have love in you, if, you don't have, if you're not becoming like Him, then you don't have Him in you. And then there's this additional symmetry you see. Two ways to live, two gates, two trees. We'll see more about that later on. Two foundations. And this is the rest of the sermon. Because what he's going to do now, he's kind of like, he's aiming toward the end of his sermon, and he's really going to draw the net. He's just basically kind of dialing in. He's going, there's only two ways. There's the way that leads to hell, and there's the way that leads to heaven. He's like, there's only two gates, you know. The way that leads to hell. There's only two trees. There's the good fruit, and there's the bad fruit. There's only two foundations. There's a foundation that works, and a foundation that doesn't work. He's just dialing in. It's like you're saying, he's saying, like you would say to somebody, I believe that everybody who ever came into this world is either going to go to hell when they die, or they're going to go to be with the Lord Jesus when they die. Can I tell you something kind of cool that happened last week? Every time I preach, I want to give the gospel. Sometimes I make it clearer than other weeks. Last week, I think I said a lot of good things from the Bible. 
But when I got all done and I was walking down that aisle right there, it occurred to me, I wish I had been clearer with the gospel. I kind of complained to the Lord, kind of confessed that to the Lord. I kind of told my family, I feel a little disappointed that I wasn't clearer. And there was even one guy who was a guest here last week. And, it, and I figured, he doesn't know the Lord. He's brand new. He doesn't know. And, I, and I, my heart kind of ached for this guy. And I thought about him. I thought, that's sad. If the guy comes to church only one time, and he doesn't learn how to be right with God, how to choose the narrow way that leads to life through Jesus Christ alone because of his death, if he misses that, what, what does it matter if he gets all this other good stuff? It just grieved me. This week I get a call from the guy. He says, can I come and see you? He came and visited me, and he basically says to me, I need to be right with God. Can you tell me how? Yeah, that's kind of a weak, puny amen for a bunch of Baptist people. I mean, seriously, a guy got saved here. He came to me, and he's like, like Jesus is saying, Ken, you really aren't that good at this. I've got to send him back for seconds. So I'm going to send him in. Now tell him. And I mean, the guy's just eager. I'm drawing him a picture. He's like, can I take that with me? Do you have a Bible? You pray for him that he will follow through and walk with the Lord and jump into our... He's got to work sometimes on Sunday. He's trying to work his schedule around so he'll be here regularly. If you see some strangers in the hallway, I want you to get them a cup of coffee. And I want you to stand with them. I want you to love them. I want you to talk to them. I want you to make them feel at home. I want you to sit with them. I want you to offer to take them out for, for lunch and have a ministry. Why is that? Because Jesus is saying this. If you have me and you, you love. If you have me and you, you love. If you don't love, you don't have me and you. And if you've got some kind of righteousness, you, make some, you have some rules for your life, you have some things that you affirm or things that you deny other people or things that you say that you believe, but you don't have love, you, you're not really, you don't really have biblical righteousness. And this is a big idea. You're not becoming like him, then you don't know him. Now this, this. Chuck Colson, you've heard a story, right? Maybe you read a story, Born Again, Loving God, some of the books that he's written. How many of you read Chuck Colson's book, Loving God, Save Me Time? Raise your hand. Anybody? Great book. A little bit old, fantastic book. Chuck Colson's story, in a nutshell, is Chuck Colson is a hatchet man for President Nixon. He's a kind of a dirty operator. He's uh, scrambling to make a name for himself. He's scrambling to get perks and privileges and stuff like that. He wants personal power. He's connected to the President of the United States. He's willing to do immoral things. He's willing to do illegal things in order to get what he wants. He's fighting for himself. He's involved in the Watergate scandal, and he gets caught in the Watergate scandal, and he gets thrown into prison. He goes from the White House to prison. Bad news, right? Bad news, right? No, because you know the rest of the story is Chuck Colson met Jesus in prison. So now before Chuck Colson gets out of prison, there's the seed thought of love and giving because now the giving God is living in Chuck Colson. And he says, what I'm going to do when I get out of prison is I'm going to go back to prison over and over and over. And Chuck Colson went back to prison in America over and over and over to minister to people in prison. And he went to prisons all around the world. Some of the most squalid prisons in all of the world. Chuck Colson Prison Fellowship has gone back to those prisons and back to prison over and over over again in order to bring the liberation of Jesus Christ to prisoners. Not too many years ago, he won the coveted Templeton Prize. He literally goes to meet with royalty in England to get the Templeton Prize. He got all the protocol. He had to be coached for a few hours on the protocol of meeting the prince and meeting the queen and all of that. He goes and he's awarded the Templeton Prize. The Templeton Prize also had with it a cash, personal cash 
prize of a million dollars. He was given personally a million dollars and this beautiful medallion, the Templeton Prize. He went back to his office and he got to thinking about it. What should I do with this one million dollars? There's so many things that he could do. He could buy. At one time, now we're talking about a man who is living for himself, who is living for now. He's living for money and privileges and perks and all of that. He immediately takes the one million dollars and he gives it away to prison fellowship. No question in his mind. He knew immediately what to do with it. What would you do if you got a million dollars? I would give a generous gift to the church. Right? Those of you think, I'd give a generous gift to the church, and then we would go on a shopping trip, you know. Well, he gave the million dollars to the prison fellowship. And, the, and, and he heard what he said. He sat in his office one day, and he had this medal. It's a gorgeous medallion he got handed from royalty in Great Britain, right? He's holding this precious medallion that he get, it was literally handed to by royalty. And he says to his secretary, I really don't know what to do with this. Why don't you take it, and we'll figure it out. So she takes it out of the room. And he goes back to his desk and he's just thinking about his work all around the world. And he remembers this letter that he has. He opens his briefcase because he knows exactly where the letter is because it's a well-worn letter. He's read it hundreds of times, dozens of times. It's all folded and so forth. He gets it out again. It's a letter from 600 Siberian Russian prisoners that got a hold of his book, Loving God, and they read it by candlelight at night and they were writing him to thank him for writing the book and sending the copies. He said, what's interesting is, today he goes, I don't know where the Templeton Prize is, but the letter is always in my briefcase. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us. And that is, if we're like him, the most fulfilling way to live our lives is to exalt him through giving and loving the way he gives and loves.